if you're physically able, in reverence and respect of God's Word, will you stand with me as we read? For Mark, chapter 15, 24-33. The Scripture says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right side and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise the chief priests also, mocking, themselves, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. In verse 33, Now when it was the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Let me see you, please. Thank you for standing. <clears throat> Crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. You see here in Mark's account of the crucifixion. What went on all around our Savior. First hand account. Of his substitutionary atoning death, burial and resurrection. And we see all the supporting characters in the whole scenario. Put there by God designed by God, ordered by God, God's sovereign over this moment. God's sovereign over everything. God offered up His Son. He didn't get in trouble with the Romans or the Jewish religious crowd and things get out of hand and then them put His Son on the cross. God ordained every last bit of it to every last detail. God sacrificed His Son. God raised up people around Nine o'clock in the morning, Jesus was placed on the cross. He hung there until three o'clock in the afternoon. The first three hours it was light. The second three hours it was darkness. The first three hours he got the wrath of man. The second three hours he got the wrath of God. But I want to notice, I want us to notice this morning something that's happening around him and how it relates to us today. It says in verse 27 that there were crucified with him two robbers. There was one on his right and the other on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled that he was numbered with the transgressors. So here Jesus is on the cross and on his left hand side and on his right hand side are guilty criminals. In the middle is an innocent son of the living God. The sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the man who became God who became flesh. In fulfillment of the scriptures. Then it says in verse 29 that those who passed by him blasphemed. Just parenthetically here, 
want to say this. This is just another one of the abundance of biblical evidence of the deity of Christ found right here. You can't commit the sin of blasphemy by reviling the Son of God unless He is God the Son. Jesus Christ is God. So they blasphemed Him and they wagged their heads saying, Aha! You destroyed the temple. They mock Him with His own words. They built it in three days. They couldn't see the spiritual truth behind what He said. You yourself, come down and come down, come down from the cross. Prove who you are. We've talked about this before, but they were wagging their heads because crucifixion victims would often, on the cross, take their head and beat it against the beam as hard as they could beat it in hopes that they would knock themselves out and somehow another escape the pain. And they were saying, you're going to be wagging your head in a minute. Right now you're submissive, and right now you're taking this. But sooner or later you'll kowtow to all your fears. Just like these two guys on either side of it, you'll start beating your head against that cross. You'll do that. You'll do that. That was prophesied, by the way, 800 years earlier in Psalm chapter 22, when David talks about the cross from uh, the second-person account. So, in fulfillment of the scriptures, they say you'll be wagging your head soon. You'll you'll succumb to the fears soon. You'll try to get out of this soon. You're going to try to alter the moment soon. You're going to be unsubmissive soon. You can't be in that much control of God the Holy Spirit. There's no way. We're going to prove you to be wrong. We're going to prove you to be a fake. We're going to prove you to be counterfeit. And of course our Lord did not. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Didn't utter a word in his defense. And went there willingly. Then in verse 31 it says, The chief priests started mocking him among themselves, with the scribes, and said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. We've talked about this before. Do you think that if he came off the cross, they would see and believe? Raising Lazarus from the dead didn't do it. Restoring sight to the blind didn't do it. Healing crippled people born, lame from birth didn't do it. Healing withered hands didn't do it. Feeding 5,000 with five loaves of bread didn't do it. I don't think that if he'd come off that cross, that would have done it. As a matter of fact, the fact that he stayed there proved who he was. If he had got down, he would have succumbed to his human nature, his human fear, and said enough of this. And by the way, there are some of you who attempt to get off your cross right now. And the enemy's tempting you and taunting you. Change circumstances and situations. Escape this. Enough pain already. This is enough. And he's trying to you know, you need a, a change of this or a change of that. God might have some changes orchestrated for you, but let Him orchestrate them and not you. Because there's a finished work He wants to do with you and the cross in you where you are. And the enemy says, I'll oh, come on off of that and prove who you are. Assert your freedom. And in so doing that, you find yourself in further bondage. Come on down. Well, Jesus didn't succumb to it. But here's what I want us to zero in on this morning. Watch this. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Okay? Here's the thing. The thief on the cross. One of the greatest conversion examples in all of the Bible that salvation is by grace and not works. It's by grace through faith. It's not works. You do not work your way to heaven. And the thief on the cross might be arguably one of the greatest conversion testimonies in all of the Bible that proves that. 
And we talk about the thief on the cross, and well, we should. And we look at his conversion, and we learn volumes about what salvation means. But I want us to learn something else about it here. He did not immediately convert to Christ on that cross. The thief that eventually converted was reviling as well. Okay, because it says both of them. Those who were crucified with him reviled him. Both of them are saying the same thing. You know, get us out of this mess. Prove who you are. They were reviling with the rest of them. They were blaspheming him with the rest of them. Both of them. And they represent all of humanity. See, you and I are either on one side of the cross or on the other. But we start out on the wrong side of it. We start out casting down on God's righteous judgment. We start out casting doubt on His provision and salvation. We start out casting doubt of the fact that we even have a need for it. That after all, we're pretty good anyway. Or maybe why not God sent His Son to die for me? Because after all, I'm a pretty good guy. But both of them are reviling Him. And here's what happened. And this is what I want to zone in on this morning. I feel led to zone in on this morning. Here's what happened. They were both crucified on either side of Him. They both were reviling Him. But a significant change happened in one of them. Let's look at the change. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 23. Turn right, if you will, in your, script, in your Bible. And let's look at Luke's account here of these events. We're going to look at 32 through 43. 32 through 43. You there? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on the right hand, and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, He is, if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews... Save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew that said, This is the king of the Jews. Now here, watch this. Look at this turn. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him. Again, biblical evidence of the deity of Christ. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying do you not even fear God seeing you were under the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong then he said to Jesus Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom some of the most amazing words in all the Bible and Jesus said to him assuredly I say to you today You'll be with me in paradise. Wow. He begins blaspheming with his other partner in crime. 
on either side of our Savior. Jesus is in the middle, not saying a word, except communion with the Father and forgiving those who killed Him, among whom we're numbered. But one of them persists in his blasphemy. He said, if you're the Son of Christ, save you and us. What's the implication? What he's saying is, is that I'm not such a bad guy after all, and I deserve to be saved based on the fact that I'm not so bad. That's what he was saying. He's basically saying, I don't deserve to die. And if you are who you say you are, you'll certainly get me out of this because this is unjust. But what did the other guy say? The other one answered and said, wait a minute, hush. Don't you even have any fear of God in you, seeing that you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed what? What's the word? Justly. We're getting what we deserve. This is repentance. This guy is repenting. He realizes by looking at Jesus in the middle, he's done nothing wrong. He goes on to say that. For we are receiving the reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Teacher, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Was that what he said? What did he say? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. That is salvation. And he said, listen, the Holy Spirit revealed to this man that he was dying for something he deserved to die for, but yet Jesus is in the middle and he's innocent and it came to him. It came to him through the witness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was in the middle dying not for anything he had done wrong because he had done nothing wrong, but he was dying for him. Salvation is found in the death of the substitute. And the substitute is God's substitute. And by the way, God's substitute is perfect. And by the way, God's substitute was prophesied before the foundation of the world. God came through on His promises. Hallelujah! 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 Jesus died for me! He didn't say, Teacher, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A teacher can't save you. A teacher can teach you about your need for salvation. But only the Lord can save you. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, listen, get off the cross. Go get baptized. Come back up here. Let them nail you back up and we'll go to heaven in the morning. Get off the cross and go help an elderly lady across the street. Get off the cross. Go into the temple and offer a sacrifice. Go through some ritual. Try to do something to make up for what you've done. None of that. He was about to die. And in that moment, he repented toward God, put faith in his Son, and he was saved and had the assurance that he was clothed with the righteousness of Christ as a guilty criminal, but now is going to be presented before the Lord of glory, not guilty. Hallelujah. Amen. And so listen, the change, the mind change, this is all of humanity. Whether either on the one side of the cross or the other, this is not fair. Nana nana boo boo. I want to be God. I want God on my own terms. Even an atheist has said before that God created man in his own image and ever since then man's been trying to return the favor. 
It's idolatry to worship any other type God except the God that says I'm perfectly righteous and holy and you are perfectly not righteous and holy. And the only way to bridge me and you together was when I took the initiative to send my only begotten Son, killed Him on Calvary's cross, motivated for my deep love for you and an eternal display of my glory that I am a just God, but I'm also a Savior. Hallelujah. Salvation is found in the death of the substitute. And the substitute is not Buddha. The substitute is not Muhammad. The substitute is not good works. The substitute is not Jesus plus good works. The substitute is Jesus, period. But here's what I want us to focus in on this morning. Why the change? Why the change? He began mocking, and you're either on one side of the cross or the other this morning. You're either saying, you know what, God? I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. I'm, I'm pretty good. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about your claims, and surely you'd receive me on my own. And whatever suffering is in my life and whatever injustice is in my life is surely caused by other people because there's certainly nothing wrong with me. Both of them began that way. One of them transitioned. And here's the premise of the message this morning. As a believer, if you're a blood-bought believer here this morning, I want you to listen to this carefully. If you're a blood-bought believer here this morning, here's the message this morning. I hope that we'll take with us. The thief on the cross who repented toward God and put faith in Jesus Christ did that because he saw the way Jesus died. Watch it now. He did that because he saw the way Jesus died. And I'm going to tell you something right now. It'll be the same with people around you. They're not going to see Jesus or come to know him because of watching you live. They're going to see Jesus and come to know, know him by watching you die. Let me, let me see, let me watch this. Now, did you hear it? You, oh, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. You've been crucified with him. Your identity and my identity as a believer is found in Him. I'm not. He not only died for me; I died with Him. I died with every. I died for toward everything that bound me before. I died toward my selfishness. I died for my fears. All of that stuff was taken to Calvary. Guilt was taken to Calvary. Shame taken to Calvary, and we have brand new life in His Son. And when people begin to watch you die, that's when they'll know that He's alive in you. Look at this. I want you to listen to this. It says this. It look at, look, I want you to look at it right here. Verse 34. Then Jesus said, For Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You imagine the impact of hanging there on the cross. And, and you've got enough of you left to watch what Jesus is doing. And you're listening to the dialogue that's going on. And you're listening to the jeering. You're listening to the mocking. You're listening to the high priest and all the religious hot shots leading all of that. And what is the Son of God's response? Father, send a nuclear bomb to take every last one of them out right now. Can I say this to you? Did you know the tense of the original language from, this, from which this is translated is repetitive? It means that it, the sense is He said it over and over and over and over again. 
He was there six hours. And every time another wave of mockers would come up, he'd say, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. That thief got to watch that. And time and again, wave after wave after wave of person, groups of them, mocking the living Son of God while He was dying for their sin, called for the Father to forgive them. Believer, if there's somebody in your life that you won't forgive, you've lost sight of how much you've been forgiven of. If there's something you're hanging on to, I want you to know something. You're in the way of God being displayed, the resurrected life being displayed in your life. See, as long as you remain alive, you cloak evidence of Jesus in your life. As long as you say, I'm holding back, I'm not letting go of that. Vile speech, the way we talk to and at and about one another, still trying to stay alive. Unforgiveness, still trying to stay alive. Withholding love for people who may be loveless, still trying to stay alive. I'm hanging on to every last vestige of my pride that promotes me staying alive. And Jesus didn't do that. He stripped Himself of everything He had. Got on the cross, opened up His arms open wide, and said, I've got nothing else to give. That's it. And God said, I spit my Son. If that's not good enough for you from heaven, nothing else will be. People come to Christ through the testimony of Christians, not by watching Christians live, but by watching Christians die. As long as you try to hang on to your rights. We have a wife and a husband. And maybe the husband's not a believer. First, first Peter 3, 1 says, that the, the chaste conduct of a believing wife with a quiet spirit, accompanied by reverence for God, the, your husband has the potential of getting saved as a result of your chaste behavior. And he could be one without a single word. Why? Because he consistently and persistently daily watches you die. We've become a bunch of mamby-pamby Christians in the United States. And every little thing that happens to us, we whine about it. As if it were some strange thing. If we're going to walk with Christ, the Bible says, in the Bible it says, those who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We have the least little bit in the United States and we whine about it. And we assert our rights and we hang on to them. You know why? Because we refuse to die. We are refusing to die. And the death of Jesus opens up the resurrected life of Him in you and I. As long as we keep holding on to our prejudices, as long as we keep holding on to our ideals, as long as we keep holding on to our rights, as long as we keep holding on to our ability to plan the future and call our shots rather than coming under submission of the Holy Spirit and let Him dictate them. See, the cross is seen in dead people's lives, not people who are hanging on the very last vestige of the bridge. We've got to get out of the way. We've got to get out of the way and let Him slay us on the cross of Calvary. Don't listen to the taunts of the enemy. Come down. I'm in a difficult marriage. Get out. Get out and prove that you can assert your rights. Get out and prove that you can just show Him or prove that you can just show her. 
That's the enemy trying to taunt and tantalize and say, come on down, come on down, come on down. Enough's enough. What if Jesus Christ would have done that? Do you know if Jesus Christ would have come on that cross, how many people in here would be redeemed right now with hope of heaven? Not one. Not one iota. There is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Period. And His death, burial, and resurrection. Had He refused to die, had He hung on to that life that was seeping out of Him, had He said, enough is enough, you're not going to do this to me. Every last one of you are going to come become toast. I'm done. This is it. It's been too long. It's stretched out too far. It's gone too far. I've got limits. Had He done that, every one of us in this room would be in hell right now. I'm glad He didn't do it. I'm glad He didn't do it. I've got an issue in my life and I want it. I want it. I'm not going to let go of it. This is protected territory. Jesus, move into my house. You can come in the living room. You come in this bedroom, this bedroom, and this bedroom, and I'll give you a couple of bathrooms or maybe a half bath downstairs. But there's a room in the corner right here that's reserved for me. And you are not welcome here. What are you trying to do? Trying to hang on to life that appears to be life when it's actually death. How little it cost us not long ago. I was listening to a message from Jim Cimbala. He's a pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in Brooklyn, New York. It's a great church. I've been there before for their prayer service on Tuesday. I had a meeting with the staff, and we were able to participate in the staff meeting. And that night we stayed over, and we had a prayer meeting. Their prayer meeting lasts four hours. When, it, when it's over, you get mad because it's over. We, got, we prayed for four hours, and they tapped me on the shoulder and said, we got to go back to the hotel room. I said, why? They said, because it's over. I said, why is it over? It went by like, like that. Prayer meeting. Prayer meeting. Most prayer meetings that we go to, we just about cannot wait until the clock strikes that we can leave. If we can just escape and get out of here, we'll be great. He said that before we went in here. He said, I'm going to tell you something right now. You're going to find out that our people don't want to leave when it's over with. Because when they go out outside these doors, they live in living hell. And when they come here, they're bent on meeting with God and they're serious about it. And buddy, he was right. So anyhow, we're praying that night. Great church. Man, what a, what a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. That's a New Testament church, in my humble but accurate opinion. And I was listening to a message by Pastor Simmons some not too long ago that somebody had emailed me and said, gave me a link and said, listen to this message. And he told this testimony. He said, you know what? We were finished with church one night. And his church is right in the middle of Brooklyn, New York. Right in the middle. Concrete jungle. It's all of that. And he said, we were finished and I was walking down the street going back to um, his house. Or to get on the subway something. And he said, and I noticed there was a crowd gathering at the bottom of a high-rise building. He knew something was going on. Police were there lights, the whole nine yards. So he walks up and there's a crowd at the base of this building and they're all looking up like this. And there's a lady on the ledge several stories up threatening to jump. So he walks up to one of the policemen and he said, listen, here's the deal. He said, I'm Pastor Simba from Brooklyn Tabernacle down the street. He said, would you let me go up there and try? 
talk her down. He said, now listen, Pastor, don't want her to be a hero. You want her to get close enough to her. She's liable to grab you. Don't get close enough to let her grab you and take both of you out. He said, I hear what you're saying. So he made his way up there several stories up. And this distressed lady was threatening to jump. And she, of course, when he got over there, and she said, wait a minute, just be calm for a minute. Just let me talk to you. But just, she said, I don't care who you are what you got to say. This is it. This is, I don't have a reason to live. He said, listen. He said, I'm the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle down the street. He said, I just want to talk with you for a minute. She said, you're the pastor of what? He said, Brooklyn Tabernacle. She said, that church down the street? He said, yeah. She relaxed a little bit and turned to him. And she said, you know what? That's the only place I've ever been where I felt loved. And she listened to what he had to say. And he talked her down. And the policeman on the scene said, I gotta cuff her. I gotta cuff her and take her down. That's 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 by the book. He said, Please don't cuff her. Let's don't add to her shame. He said, No, no, I've got to cuff her. He said, Well, listen, cuff her in the front. And he took his coat and put it around her. So he covered up and put his arm around her and walked out of that building with that lady. And she was in the service and came forward to testify that that's exactly what happened. Can I say this to you? She didn't say one thing about the preaching at Brooklyn Tabernacle. She didn't say anything about the music. And I'm going to tell you something right now. There's not a church in America that has better music than Brooklyn Tabernacle. Not one. If you're anywhere familiar with them, their Grammy Award winning choir has been produce some of the most spirit-filled music I've ever heard in my life. She didn't say, you know what, I was down there at Brooklyn Tabernacle and, and y'all have a great choir. And boy, you're a great preacher. She didn't say any of that. See, what talked her down was not Pastor Simbula. What talked her down was the love of Christ as it was expressed through that body. That's what talked her down. What talked her down was being habitually hugged by strangers when she walked in the door. What talked her down was people not with crass, critical attitudes or caustic attitudes or any kind of, you know, bent toward looking at strangers in a different way. What broke all of that down was love. That's what broke that down. And he had an audience with her because God had expressed love through that church to that lady. And she taught, he taught her down. Jesus taught her down. You see, this world is not waiting for us to live for Christ. This world is waiting for us to die for. We're hanging on to our pathetic pride. We're hanging on to our prejudices. We're hanging on to our unforgiveness. We're hanging on to our bitterness. And most of it is based on the fact that we're hanging on to our fears. What did the thief, what did the thief say? He said, listen, do you not even, look at verse 40. Do you not even what? Fear God. Is there not just a little bit of the fear of God in you left? Is it all gone? That's the question. That's the seedbed of it all. Is there any fear left in you? How much is it going to cost us? Now listen to me carefully. Don't pervert this message or let the enemy pervert it by saying that we're saying that your death has any redemptive value for somebody else because it doesn't. Jesus' death on the cross is a finished work. When he said, it is finished, you know what he meant? It is finished. That's done. My death to my prejudices, my death to my pride, my death to my fears, 
my death to my guilt. Did you know that if you don't take your guilt to Calvary, everybody, including you, and everybody around you, and the church you go to, will suffer because you will not take your guilt to Calvary. John Calvin said this, A bad conscience is the mother of all heresy. That's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Take your wounded conscience to Jesus at the Calvary and lay it down there and don't pick it back up again because you'll wound everybody around you. And you'll certainly live wounded. The answer is the cross of Calvary. People do not come to Christ by watching us live. They come to Christ by watching us die. You want a proof of that? That's not some little quirky, fancy saying that I came up with. Let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 5. I want to ask you something this morning. Can we do this? And I've been praying about this and I feel released to say this. If this is me, just write it off that Brother Lindsay had indigestion. But if this is the Lord, then follow it. But let me just say this to you. I would like for us as a body of Christ known as Household of Faith Bible Church to commit these verses to memory so that we be able to say it just like that. This is what it says. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Matter of fact, God willing in future... If He doesn't come back and He lets us live in future Sundays, we're going to have somebody come up here and recite these verses from memory, our little ones or somebody, and habitually to recite these verses so that we know them and they're embedded in our hearts. Are you watching it? Now before we leave this, let me just say this to you and add a, add a big exclamation point. My death, as it's identified with Jesus' death on the cross, did not purchase anybody's salvation and will not purchase anybody's salvation and cannot purchase anybody's salvation. But it will be the catalyst, the doorway, the threshold through whom people do get to see God's finished work on the cross and His Son who died there. Did that make sense? That makes sense, Mark? Okay. Alright, so here's what we're saying. It is not redemptive for you and I to suffer. But God uses our suffering redemptively. Okay? To display His Son. But watch it. Watch this. What's the incentive? What's the catalyst, Ken? Is it love for Christ? Or is it the love of Christ? For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus. That if one died for all, who is that one? Jesus. Did He die for us? Yeah. Okay. Then what happened to us? Then all died. Amen. Amen. We died, Ray. So long, Ray. You're a dead man. That old man that got you in all that mess and wrecked and ruined your life is dead. Aren't you grateful for that? Do you have any fond memories of him? Do you? Do you have one fond memory of the guy that got you in trouble? No. No. Because you found life in Christ. Amen? And you're dead. And he died for all. What was his purpose? He died for all to open up what door? That those who live should no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and rose again. Amen. You know what we need that knocked out of us? Me. I said we. 
We need the selfishness not out of us. And say, so, you know what? It's no longer me. It's thee. It's no longer me. Oh, death in most instances for the believer costs so little. Can I give you an example of one? Brother Ray? Brother Ray Morris. Have you heard about what uh, Ken Moss did? I mean, do you know? I mean, do you know how sorry Ken Moss is? And do you know what he did to prove that sorriness? Can I tell you? Okay. The moment you received that, you tried to stay alive. Death for you would be to say, Brother Lindsay, can I stop you right there? Have you ever talked to Brother Ken about that? You know what, Brother Ray? I've never talked to him about it. Well, then everything that you've got to say about Brother Ken, I can't receive. Because you've got to go to talk to Ken about that. How much that cost you, Ray? How much that cost you? Do you know what that's right up there with? You know what that's right up there with, Ray? That's right up there with, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. It's the same thing. Father, forgive them. I'm not going to hang on to my pride. I don't want the juicy little trifles you're about to give me. I don't want to feed on them. I want to feed on the Word of God. And I won't want fellowship within the body of Christ to be disrupted in any measure because we all pay a price for that. I want us to be united for a cause. And the cause is not missions. And the cause is not evangelism. The cause is Christ. And whatever that may mean. Amen? He costs so little most of the time. We look at martyrdom and the big shots and the ones who have done all that. And maybe in this country, and we're headed toward it, we might have to die for our faith. We might be called upon to die for our faith. But let me tell you this. That's physical death. Daily you're called upon to die for your faith. In little deaths, there's so little. There's so little and they cost so little. But the rewards, the rewards are huge. Do you think anybody at Brooklyn Tabernacle thought anything of hugging this strange woman? Did you think they had any idea that this one strange woman, that it cost this? Come here, Ray, please. I'll pick on you. It, it, this is what it cost. This is what taught her down from the ledge. She said it. And I had a friend of mine who went there recently and said the same thing. Habitually, people were coming up here. Like, I want you to know it's good to have you. It's good to see you. Never met him before in his life. That's how much that cost. All of those herds collectively talked a woman off a ledge. Do you hear it? And the prices that we think are exorbitant and significant and out there and excessive Christian living that somehow or another we've reached a level of superiority and surrender that others can only dream about when in reality they come day in and day out with just little bitty sacrifices of yourself where you say I choose to forgive no matter what because I've been forgiven. I choose to love because God unconditionally loves me. I choose to serve because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. I choose to give even when it doesn't make sense. Why? Because Jesus loves a cheerful giver. And for God so loved the world, He what? He what? He gave His only begotten Son. Hanging on to our nasty pride and the fear that provokes it, and we need to let it go as of this morning. Right now. Enter in. Steve Green's got a song. He says, Enter in. Enter in. Surrender to the Spirit's call to die and enter in. The Imperials have got a song years ago they used to do. In my house there's been a mercy killing. The man I used to be has been crucified. 
And the death of that man is a final way of revealing. In the spiritual way to live, I have to die. And if that dead man lingers in me, I might get a little idle in my way. So I'm going down to the Celebration River and I'm going to take that dead man down to a water grave. God, kill him. Kill him. Because of the Christian life, the only way to live is die. The only way that other people will know that He's alive in you is because you died with Him. He died for all so that those who live, He died for all, therefore all died. And those, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. 